On February 19th, 1519, uh, Herman Cortez, Hernan Cortez, set out sail from Mexico with an entourage. 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, and 553 soldiers. The indigenous people, upon arrival, were approximately numbered at 5 million. So the statistics or the ratio of success in being able to set up a place in this land was 7,541 to 1. Two previous expeditions had failed to establish a settlement in this new world. Yet Cortez conquered much of the South American continent. What Cortez is reported to have done in the landing is an epic tale of proportions. He issued an order that turned the mission to an all or nothing proposal. What the history books record for us is his command was burn the ships. Burn the ships, meaning that there's no opportunity for retreat. We're here and success is the only option. There's no going back. There's no place for return. All the resources were given in the thought of being able to conquer this new land. We've jumped into our study in the book of James, and and Jim artfully last week set us up to be able to deal and, and wrestle with the implications of what the gospel does really in every area of our life. And I think in part what James is doing is very much that same call that Cortez gave his men. Burn the ships. But I think it's different because I think the nuance of what James is drawing us to here this morning and as we walk through this book is is a reality that often in the context of our life, we have places of retreat, if you will. Those areas of places that we would find comfort or satisfaction in the context of this world that we retreat to when trials come our way, when we find ourselves struggling with life or the challenges that we did not predict, or even the ones that we did predict that are just very or feel very insurmountable, we find ourselves wrestling with how to find temporary comfort in this world. The book of James has been challenging throughout history. It's difficult for numerous reasons, not the least of which, that there are at least 50 commands in the context of this book. (laughs) They're imperatives, do this. And so when we look at this book, often it can feel as though it's even insurmountable to do the very simple or not so simple things that James is telling us to do. But like we wrestled with last week, those imperatives, those commands embedded in the source of that desire to do these things does not come with behavior modification. That James' goal at the end of this book is just you'll you'll be a better person. The goal is that there's this progressive reality of intimacy with Jesus that he's drawing us to. So embedded within the command is this really an invitation of Jesus being the source and sufficiency of all things in the context of our lives. He compels us really to say, as we understand the true nature of the saving, rescuing grace of Jesus Christ, what we're compelled to is this abiding relationship that is all-consuming in the context of life. 
Let me remind you just briefly of James chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to be in verses 13 through 18 this morning. But, but look what James chapter, 12, James chapter 1, verses 12 says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Let me suggest to you that as we've walked through this book, and we're talking about lacking nothing, I think verse 12 becomes a, a really sort of operating or governing passage where the truth found embedded in, in verse 12 is so much substantive that it begins to carry us through the rest of the book. Many of us have been told that we wear a lot of hats. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, I'm a counselor, I have all these things that I do. And I say I wear a lot of hats, and you as well. You're a wife and a, a mother, a friend, a college student. You have all of these things that are identifying markers, and they say you wear a lot of hats. I want to suggest to you this morning that what James chapter 1, verse 12 is saying to us is exchange all of those hats for a crown. And here's what I mean. That the abiding reality of the gospel where we are found and finding life in Christ and what he's given us and the full sufficiency of his grace for every moment, that if we're looking at life through the lenses of the life that we've been given in Christ, that is the central mitigating thing in everything we say, everything we do, all times, everywhere. That there's not a moment in the midst of the challenges that we face where the reality of the life that we've been given in Christ is insufficient for what he's called us to. That the work and the strength and the power and the glory and the joy of what it means to be intimately connected with Jesus is not only the source and the supplier of all of our hope, but that which directs us towards all of those trials that James is telling us to count it all joy in. So in all of the obstacles that we face in life, it's not as though the Lord is asking you to figure out what you need to do to garner up enough strength or power to be able to handle this situation. It's to see that in every situation, God is progressively moving us deeper into intimacy with himself. That there is an abiding, trusting, sufficient relationship that he's called us to that is the source of our hope. And there's so many reasons why he does that, not the least of which is to say as all of these things transpire and God works in numerous and miraculous ways, we could never get to the end of our story and say, look what we did. You never get to the end of your story or my story and say, look, I figured it out. Because all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the value belongs to Christ alone for the work that he's doing. And so really what James is compelling us to in the midst of all of these commands and all of these challenges is to realize the deep, abiding, practical work of the gospel in every area of life. That we truly are in Christ lacking nothing. And yet, as Jim said last week, we live in the land of lack. <laughs> we are well aware of our own insufficiencies. And so what I want to do is walk through four specific anchors that draw us to the rest of the book of James. Like these are the themes that are going to progressively continue to be revisited time and time and time again. And anchor point number one is, is in Christ, we, we lack nothing. 
That means that for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we can find ourselves recognizing that there will be moments, if not often, we will be meeting things in our life where we will say, I can't do this. I'm not sure the way forward. I don't know what to do. This is too hard. I don't know what's next. And confusion and frustration and impatience really at times of just getting through the situation will tend to consume our thoughts of what we think should happen. And then what ends up happening? We transition very quickly to worshipful, honorable faith in Christ to an outcome-based theology of saying, well, if God works, he has to work this way. And for me to have faith in him, it has to look like this. And so we shift away from God being the centerpiece of our lives to us being the centerpiece and telling God what to do. This is a critical book for us to realize how the gospel applies to every area of life. So anchor point number one, in Christ, we lack nothing. Anchor point number two, God gives abundantly, appropriately, and always affectionately. I hijacked that from Jim's sermon last week, but I think it's an and so I, I'm going to give him credit because I didn't write that, all right? So it's Jim. This is Jim. But I, I want us to realize that in the sense that this is something that flows through and, and weaves itself through, through the entire book of James. And we're going to see very critically how that shows up this morning. Because in verses 13, it's as though James begins to preempt a potential argument against how we can find joy in trials. Count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into trials. For the testing of your faith produces endurance. And you're going to say, oh, that's great. But now verse 13 is going to say, but is God tempting us? Is sort of the question, right? Is, is God bringing these things? Is he tempting me in ways just to, just to see if I can manage and hold up in the midst of the most difficult things in life? Is he just seeing if somehow in some way I'm, I'm, I'm not a hypocrite, that I'm really holding true and that there's some resiliency inside my own life that I can muster enough courage and bravery and strength to do what I need to do? And, and James preempts that uh, question and begins to answer it for us. But let me get to the other anchor points. Anchor point number three, steadfast faith is anchored in intimacy with Christ. So often when many look at the book of James, what they see is, um, I know where I need to change. I need to do better. And if I just worked a little bit harder, uh, then I would be able to accomplish some level of spiritual achievement. And that's actually the antithesis of what the book of James is about. He's telling us that the sufficient work of Jesus Christ in our lives and the work of the Holy Spirit is generating and, and um, instrumenting change in our life in such a way that the decisions that we make, the strength that we need, the desires that we have, the affections that we long for, as we progressively grow in intimacy with Christ, those things begin to change. And so what we long for is more of Jesus. There's more significant foundation that our faith is being built, not our ability to live life. That's pretty significant because you and I are going to meet obstacles in the context of our life where we're not going to have the ability to find our way through. You know, you've heard it said, um, God never gives you more than you can handle. I say, that's a lie. It's blatantly a lie. Every time we encounter trials 
It's the realization that I don't have what I need. I'm insufficient for the task before me. I, I, I realize that there are things that are surrounding my life and the challenges that I face that I don't have. It's, it's way more than I can handle. But I've got a God who handles it all. Right? That, that's the goal. It's not increasing your ability to handle stuff. It's driving us to places of deeper intimacy with the God who handles everything fundamentally a different perspective. Anchor point number four, which I think really does set up the precedent for the rest of the book, because I think he's going to take us to these places that we would retreat in, those places that we haven't burned the ships, or as Jim said last week, burn the bridges, those areas that we go back to when things get hard. I think what James is going to communicate to us and, and set the framework for in the, the next couple of chapters of this book is to Help us understand why our hearts have a tendency to go those ways. Anchor point number four is that trials lend themselves to bad theology. What ends up happening often in our lives is we can let the challenges shape our view of God in ways that distort the truth of his character. So what he's going to deal with this morning in these short five verses is really helping us wrestle with the goodness of God in the midst of very difficult times. In the, in the, in the midst of difficult trials, in the midst of uh, really challenging circumstances, where do we see and how do we see the goodness of God? What does that mean? Do we accuse God of not being good? Well, that seems like bad theology, but at this point, God doesn't feel good. And I can sense that he's good to other people, but will he be good to, to me? It's, it's in that point where I want to locate the gospel this morning. I want to locate the pursuing, rescuing reality of Jesus Christ and his saving, sufficient power in your life and mine this morning in that moment. Here's what he says in James chapter 1. Verses 13 through 18. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desires, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with him, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So here's the beginning process is that as, as James moves us forward, he, he sort of preempts an accusation that would be levied against God. Will you tell me to be joyful in trials? I'll, I'll afford you and even just maybe provide the opportunity that, that that's a possibility. That somehow in some way in the midst of challenging circumstances, I would hope that I could find joy. But if God is good, and loving and kind and gracious towards his people, why would he do it? Why would he allow or even direct these challenges or temptations that surround my life? Is he just testing me to see if I'm going to fall? Does it seem like sort of just a shell game where I just have to guess that I'm making the right decision? 
Again, if we're not careful, trials lend themselves to bad theology. Remember last week, he says, let, let us, if anyone needs wisdom, let him ask for it. And God gives abundantly and affectionately and consistently on behalf of his people. So there's something that we need to know here in the understanding of God's character and his work in the midst of our lives. God is never the source of our temptations. Our appetites are. <laughs> I know I'm probably not going to be the most popular, but James wrote it, I didn't. So we'll just leave it there. But there is a sense in which what he's drawing us to is this understanding that often our gaze in the midst of struggles is to look at God and say, what are you doing? Instead, what the focus or the microscope that James is going to bring towards us is look at what God's doing when you, when you look inside and you see what lives and breathes there. And he's going to move us to, to critical, I think, five critical places that are going to be addressed as we apply the gospel to all of those spaces. Like the gospel needs to be applied to every area of life. And I think James basically kind of universally addresses those things. And so there, there are five areas that he's going to have us wrestle with through the rest of this book as we think about the life-giving, rescuing power of Jesus at work in our life in the midst of every situation. Here are the five. Let's put them up this morning. Faith. I think he's dealing with faith. Faith that lends itself to deeper intimacy with Jesus or faith that's based on uh, hoping for a specific outcome that is self-generated. I think he's going to draw us into both of those places that we have to look at. How do we address, how do we see the work of God in the midst of people? And he's going to expose areas of our heart where we're going to realize that often we're given to partiality or comparison. We're going to minimize the significance of the widows and orphans and how, how true religion is called to, to specifically love and care for those individuals, but at the same time realize that within our hearts lives and breathes a selfishness and a desire for self-protection, a desire to meet our own needs, and then we only give out of our abundance rather than trusting the power and provision of Christ. He's going to hit really hard on the conversation of words. <laughs> How we speak. He uses the term taming your tongue. <laughs> so it's like trying to put a bridle in a horse's mouth. Like if you're not careful, the same tongue you use to praise God is the same tongue you use to curse other people. There's change. We need to apply the gospel to that situation. How we deal with anger. I love as the book goes on, he says, okay, let me tell you why you guys fight. And he gives an analysis. And when I say you guys, I mean you guys, I mean me, I mean marriages, I mean relationships, I mean with neighbors, across the board, categorically, why do people argue and quarrel? And he says it right here in this book. It's because you're not getting what you want. <laughs> you're not happy with the situation you're in and you want someone else to blame for it. So again, it's not to say, well, just don't do that. He's saying in that moment where you're noticing that anger and that fight and that quarrel, the gospel has something to say. Actually, the gospel is doing something in that moment. One of the greatest gifts that you and I could ever receive is the awareness of how deeply we need Jesus. And that happens when we see our sin. So it's not as though we're trying to recoil from the fact that we realize what's inside, but we become increasingly and abundantly aware when we recognize the sin that lives and breathes inside of us. We find ourselves saying, yeah, I realize that I can't ever consider myself better than anybody else. 
I'm in deep need of Jesus. How I speak actually is a reflection of what's going on inside. I need, the, I need the gospel. I need the rescuing grace of Jesus to draw me into deeper intimacy and instrument change in my heart. Wisdom, worldly wisdom, godly wisdom. Am I thinking and being discipled by the context of the world or am I being discipled by the truth and the abiding nature of God's word as it lives in my life? Am I recognizing the power and sufficiency of God as he speaks through his word? Am I looking at the culture through the lenses of the gospel or am I looking at the gospel through the lenses of the culture? It's a challenging situation. A few weeks ago, we've walked through as a nation the reversal of Roe v. Wade, right? We found ourselves realizing, and, and literally, it is the reason I've gotten off Facebook. And here's why. There's no righteousness in that. But what I found inside my own heart is all of these things that have started to come out by people and friends and situations, I found it hard to love. <laughs> like there's been a growing anger with regards to how to respond to those situations. And I know that digitally is not the best place to respond. And so I'm trying to prevent myself from really making a fool out of myself. And I, I celebrate and I'm so grateful for the reality of the decision that's been made by our government. And yet this tension that moves me to the place of saying, now I'm still in a position of recognizing that what I need to foster, what, what I need, what, what, the, what the gospel is fostering inside my heart is how do I live with a level of gospel-focused compassion to those who are so vehemently angry at what happened? I am 100% grateful, and I think it's the right decision that we made for our country. I think we're called to protect the unborn. I think it matters when we think about life and that the world's most vulnerable. I think James is going to get into that when he talks about widows and orphans, that we see vulnerability and we move towards lovingly applying the gospel. But I can't discard those who are so hating what's happened as though I don't have to compassionately realize that the gospel applies to them too. There's tension in these realities and we find ourselves working through how those things matter in our lives. And so I, I think the, the epistle of James is helping us, leading us to how the gospel is going to compel us towards people. The closer you get towards Jesus, the more we realize that Jesus is a rescuing, saving God who cares about the lost and the broken, who cares about those who are hurting, who cares about those who do not have life figured out, which is us. A, number one, Paul would say, I'm the chief of sinners, complicit at the murder of Stephen. And yet the receiving, rescuing grace of Jesus transformed Paul's life in such a way that he's the predominant writer in the New Testament, telling the story of the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, it's at that moment we think about the crown of life. That's what we want. The most critical juncture and the most critical intersection is when our lives, our hearts, our eyes see the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of people around us. And we're able to intersect that with the loving, transforming power of Jesus. And we're moving towards that with saying, look, in the midst of what you think and what you believe, let me tell you about the goodness of God. Let me tell you about how James tells us that there's nothing, every good and perfect gift comes from above the Father of lights. 
that God is working and dispensing the aspects of his character in the midst of our lives. And I want to tell you about the Jesus who not just saved me, but is daily saving me. Because what James is doing is exposing and forcing me to see that there are places in my heart that still need change. And, and he does it unashamedly. So God is never the source of our temptation. Our appetites are. See, that's the interesting part about sin. Is sin is like fishing. I'm not saying fishing's a sin. I'm saying sin is like fishing. It always shows us the bait, but never the hook. Right? There's this, I mean, it's, it's, it's the way we hunt. Right? When do you hunt? Well, you hunt at rut. Right? When the male bucks are really interested in the female bucks. And there's a sense in which the appetite allows them to not think about anything around them but that female deer. And that's when you shoot them. And that's when they are on your dinner table and it tastes really good. But that's what you do, right? That's the, the point is that often there's that sense in which our appetites can drive our decisions rather than the gospel drive our appetites. That's why desires are something that James is going to take on. How do we apply the gospel to our desires? Just recently, I was listening to a story and he was telling himself, his name is Ken Rideout. And uh, he grew up in the inner cities of Boston, uh, pretty tough upbringing, uh, joined a boxing gym just because he was certain that he was going to get in numerous fights and he wanted to make sure that in the midst of those fights, not only could he hold his own, but he could beat the tar out of someone else. At the age of 18, he got a job at a, at a prison within that area and he was working there um, and his uh, brother-in-law and his dad were both part of that prison, but they weren't working there. They were actually inmates. Um, and so as he began to walk through his life, one of the things that he found is that he, he moved towards addiction. So he quickly, in his early 20s, became addicted to, to drugs and alcohol. And uh, in the process, that was the, sort of the source of his, his comfort. That was his go-to. That was the place that he would regularly retreat um, and he began to tell the story of what it was like to walk through. And he's not a believer, but he began to talk about the reality of what he went through to recover or find recovery from his addiction. And in the process, he said two things that he had learned that really stuck with me. He said, you know, one of the things I realized in the midst of my addiction is that you're only as sick as your secrets. You're only as sick as your secrets. <laughs> and so for him the reality of coming out and realizing that he had an issue and that struggles had, had taken over and consumed his life and that he was able to be open and authentic with his wife and, and uh, family members and the people that were part of his recovery began to grow him to a place where he could move away from his addiction. And then he said this, sunlight is the best disinfectant. I love that. Although I think he's off just a little bit. I think what James is telling us is that sunlight is the best disinfectant. I think that's where he's driving us. Ken Rideout, um, the reason why he came to notoriety and the reason I was listening to him is because he's a 51-year-old man who just ran the New York Marathon in two hours and 33 minutes. <laughs> Freaking stud. I mean, this is crazy. Like, he's just cooking. But he talks about the reality of how even in the midst of uh, running and exercise and all of these things, he, he constantly and chronically becomes aware 
of his life and what is happening and trying to figure out a way to manage those things that he's done and the embarrassment and the shame that continued to, and still to this day continues to kind of grip his heart. He he said that he, he went to a therapist and he was diagnosed with what they call fraud complex or imposter syndrome. He said, what it means is that no matter what I've done and whatever achievements I've found and what success I feel, I always feel like I just snuck in the back door. Like I never really feel like I was actually able to achieve these things and that I'm some sort of fraud. And the shame and the embarrassment, and even as he would, even in the midst of tears, talk about his story and how embarrassed he was at the decisions he made. Shame was such a huge part of his story, even though those true truths were significant, that you're only as sick as your secrets and that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I couldn't help but that moment as I heard his story begin to pray and pray the reality of his life that, that we have a shame-removing God. We have a God that not only rescues, but that in the reality of utilizing the story that God is writing in our life, that, that freedom and liberation from embarrassment and shame of bad decisions is redeemed by Jesus. That is awesome. And I want that for him. As he begins to recover and work through those things, we think about that reality, and that's the answer. You gotta change the U to an O. You got to. Because it's not so much just to get it out, but we need the Son of God to be the source of our light, and that becomes the best disinfectant. That as we open our lives to the reality of God's redeeming grace in our lives, we see the transforming work and power that we serve a shame-removing God. Amen, church. <laughs> I mean, this is, like this is important stuff. So as Ken write out, um, hopefully one day we'll discover that truth. Here's what I want to tell you. And, and I'm going to set it up just a little bit because I don't want you to, I want you to listen to what I'm going to say as James goes on. And I, I don't want you to string me up as a heretic, but I, but I want you to listen very closely because I think that this is so critical with where James move us, moves us. Receiving... The rich love of God is conditional. Receiving the rich love of God is conditional. Now, before you crucify me as a heretic, here's the condition. The condition that must be met is that the full and complete punishment for sin was totally satisfied by Jesus on the cross. If that condition were not met, we should expect some level of punishment for our sins and failures. If it is met, none of the actions of God towards us are punishment. This is important because when we talk about the fact that trials lend themselves to bad theology, here's the initial place that my heart goes. I've suffered an incalculable loss. My life is absolutely in shambles. I have combed through the debris of my life and the infrastructure has fallen down and I'm left with nothing and I don't know what's there. My initial theological statement is, God must be punishing me for what I've done. Anybody said that? Anybody ever gone to that place in their mind where they've said, you know what, God, God is right to punish me because of the sins of decades ago that I've done. That he's still working in such a way to to help me understand the gravity of my sin and punishment for what I've done. 
theologically that cannot be true. And it cannot be true because then what it does is diminish the reality of what Jesus did on the cross. And what Jesus did on the cross, he doesn't need your help. He doesn't need you to be in the place of saying, you know, Christ, I know you were a perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God, that your shed blood was shed. You were innocent. I am guilty. And somehow in some way, I have to come alongside and help you out and say, nope, I've still got to make up for my badness and my brokenness. That I want to say it's sufficient, but I also want to make my heart feel noble that I'm somehow contributing to these things. Bad theology. If the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is sufficient payment for all sin. God's wrath was dispensed on the second person of the Trinity, God himself, then none of the actions of God towards us are punitive. None. That's a big deal. And I think that when we think about those realities and the significance of those things, we begin to understand our appetites and understand that what's going inside and the trials that we face and the challenges that exist, sometimes it's just brokenness of the world. Often it's our own brokenness and the challenges that we face. Sometimes it's all self-induced. But in the midst of all of those things, James does not give a caveat to the trial. He doesn't say if the trial was something that you did and a stupid mistake that you made, then all bets are off. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, if the trials that exist are totally outside of your control and really, really hard and it's someone else's fault, don't count it all joy. He doesn't say that. He says, count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into trials because the refining nature of faith and God drawing you to himself, what you're receiving is the goodness of God and that receiving of the goodness of God is intimacy with him. You are in a place and in a relationship that is so locked in, so abundantly secure, so unfettering and unwavering that the rescuing love of Christ is all you need in this moment and for every moment you'll face from here on out. That's why we preach the gospel. Because so often we wanna be our own accusers or we listen to the accusers around us and say, you're not enough, you failed, you made a mistake. And certainly there's aspects of that that's true. We have failed, we have made egregious mistakes. We've committed erroneous errors against a loving and holy God. And yet the reality of the implications of the cross are so sufficient that even the sin that you have yet to imagine or commit in the next minute, month, or decade have already been paid for by the sufficient reality of Jesus' death on the cross. That is awesome. And that's why there's a reality of safety to be able to allow sunlight, S-O-N, to be the best disinfectant. Let Jesus into that space that you and I are trying to manage. That place, that narrative, where we're trying to make it sound better than it really is, to feel better than we really feel. There's a level of authenticity that the Lord brings us to in this moment. So here's what he said, bad theology. Trials can blind us to the goodness of God. It just happens. We look at what's before us and we see the overwhelming challenges, whether it's our sin or the sin of someone else or the, just the consuming nature of life. 
and we think, is this all there is? Is this all that there can be? I am never more loved than when it's safe to be changed. (laughs) I'm never more loved than when I'm in a relationship where it's safe to be changed. What James is driving us to this morning, and I think through the rest of the book, is a level of radical authenticity and an openness to say to ourselves and to one another, and, and more importantly, before a holy God who knows everything anyway, like things are a mess. And I know that I don't think rightly about you, but here's what James tells me. Every good and perfect gift comes from above the Father of lights. Every aspect of anything that's ever happened in your life that you could see as good is because of the directed nature of God's love towards you. And in the midst of all of that badness and even all of the challenges, the sin you've done and the sin done to others and the sin that others have done to you and all of the complications... We look at Romans 8 and it tells us that God works out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. One theologian once said, God uses sin sinlessly. It's not as though the plan of God is thwarted because mistakes were made. The gospel applies to every situation all the time, everywhere, and every moment. That doesn't give us freedom to make mistakes, be like, okay, this is great, let's just go party and live life. No, what he's saying is that the gospel compels us into intimacy with Jesus where we're not trusting our own strength but his. So I think that that's where he drives us. Verse 16, don't be deceived. Why does he say that? That's a command. Because we're tempted to be deceived. (laughs) We're tempted to believe the lie. And the lie is God's not good when things are hard. That's a lie. So what does he say? My beloved brothers, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I think what he's saying is God is not contained by our current trial. God's not contained by our current trial. It's not as though we can put God in a box and say, This is so life-altering and so life-consuming that somehow in some way it feels as though God has to work within this framework that we've predetermined. God is working and has always been working and not contained to this one situation or circumstance. He's directing his love towards you. If it's true that every good and perfect gift comes from above, that means that what you can anticipate in the most challenging trials of life is that God is directing his goodness towards you. And that what's happening isn't punitive. He's not saying, I really need them to be punished for what they've done so that somehow, in some way, they'll just be better people. That never works. And nor is it the gospel. It's the anti-gospel. It's the distortion of the evil one that would want to convince us that we have to do something to be better and approved by God. That we have to perform in some sort of way that if we did the right thing, God would love us more. I will tell you that there is some performance that took place in the gospel, but it's Christ's performance on the cross. He did what you and I could not do. So it's not as though he's asking us to get our act together. He's saying that in the midst of our acts who aren't together, as we comb through the debris of our life, we're looking to Jesus as the rescuer of our life, not just rescuing us for salvation, but daily rescuing us from ourselves. 
He is changing us because he loves us and directing his goodness towards us. God is not contained by our current trial. Now, I've chatted with my wife numerous times, and she's probably one of the best persons to offer correction. I even asked her after my sermons, hey, how did that go? And I'm desperate for her to say, oh, that was the best sermon ever. Um, And that's happened two or three times. Um, No, but one of the things she says is long quotes, man. Don't use long quotes because people just get lost. And, and I'm not listening to her this morning. And so it's my fault. But there is something that I, I read. And it's, a, it's in, in the book, Counseling from the Cross, that I think is, is helpful. And so I'm going to try and read it slow. But I think it captures, as I finish up, the essence of what James is drawing us to this morning. And, and realizing that, that he's going to accelerate the application of the gospel to areas of our life as things come up. So there are going to be very specific targeted areas where I would anticipate in my life as well as yours that we were going to have a lot less amens and a lot more ouches in the context of our series through the book of James. And I think that's good because God is directing his goodness towards us and we're realizing these are the places that the gospel is changing. But in the book, uh, Counseling from the Cross, they say this, we believe that the cross of Christ exposes both our own and our counselees utter helplessness and unworthiness. Each of us rightly deserves a guilty verdict and divine wrath that Jesus bore in our place. Therefore, when we take the cross seriously, we find our pride, our self-satisfaction, and our smug resentment towards or contempt for others shattered into a thousand pieces. But the cross also exposes another surprising truth. The holy sovereign Lord whose authority we have defied, whose glory we have deflected to unworthy rivals, was willing to endure the judgment that his own impeccable justice pronounced upon us. Here it is. The cross declares that we are loved with an intensity that defies our capacity to comprehend. Not because we are intrinsically lovable, but because God is intrinsically love. I'm going to read that last sentence one more time, and then I'm going to close in prayer. The cross declares that we are loved with an intensity that defies our capacity to comprehend. Not because we are intrinsically lovable, but because God is intrinsically love. Let's pray.